Are you well today? Is it well with your soul? All the parents whose children are already back in school are both rejoicing and lamenting. I hear you, Tamara. It's good. Mm, so does the Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm. Today is a special day on a number of fronts. First, we have Carrie and Rob back from sabbatical. Come on now. And the Duncans are back in town. They're back in the saddle tomorrow. Uh, Milan and Kenya are here serving. Guys, this family, man, these kids are committed. They are serving your kids and my kids as well upstairs. Um, It's a beautiful day. I have two announcements for you before we jump into the Word. We have registration for both of the things I'm about to say at the Welcome Center, which is basically when you head out these double doors and you're headed toward the main exits, right there on the right, there will be a number of people after first service that can help you. We are uh, launching table groups a week from tomorrow, which means registration is active as of today. Y'all, we have 21 groups Fantastic. There's a map. In case you're wondering, how do I choose one? Well, uh, one may be chosen for you. Here's how. They all meet on different nights of the week. And uh, in 2023, nobody is available seven days a week. It just doesn't happen. So already that's going to eliminate a number of them. And then two, we have a map which shows where all of the groups are. And ideally, there would be a group that is near your house, that works with your schedule, and has spots left. Now, the perfect table group is between 8 and 15 people. So these are not groups of 20 and 30 and 40 people. So if you're intending on registering for a group, I would encourage you to do so today. You can do it right out there in the lobby, one of those Uh, Beautiful people will be at the Welcome Center able to help you. You can also do it online. You can also do it by following uh, any number of the QR codes around the building. But there will be plenty of opportunities next Sunday after service. We're going to have a table group fair just in case you don't have time today. So those will be starting a week from Monday and going through the first week of December. The second thing we have registration for is men's retreat. Men's Retreat is at the end of September, so we are roughly six weeks away. Y'all, you want to come if you can. This year, we are changing the location. We'll be at Quaker Ridge, which is in Woodland Park. It is one of the best ways as a man, especially if you're new to this congregation, to get plugged in and to meet other men. What we typically say is that coming to men's retreat is a way to expedite the connection that would take roughly a year to happen on just Sunday mornings. So if you're here and you're committed to this house and you're saying, I'm ready to get plugged in, I wanna meet some people, register for men's retreat. Once also, there are a limited number of spots for that. And so if you intend to come, if you can come, please register. And if cost is the prohibitive factor for you, please let us know as we are also having other people contribute to a scholarship fund. All right? Christ is risen. Those are the announcements. Now listen, at the end of service, when you're all, when you're weepy up here praying with people, that's incredible. Don't forget to sign up for those two things, all right, when you leave this place. Christ is risen indeed. Today, um, I'm preaching the last installment on this series of the Spirit-Filled Life. Now, between Pastor Jade and myself, 
We had about six to eight more messages we wanted to preach in this series, as it is with almost every series that we preach. And as I was toiling on Monday and Tuesday, and I had, I had lines in the water with a bunch of these different messages, one of them just kept popping out to me. And that is to talk with you today about trust, trusting God. It occurred to me that for any of what we have talked about throughout the summer to happen, it requires an element of trust. That there is nothing that we do in God. You might insert the word faith for the word trust. There is nothing that we do in God or with God or through God that doesn't require some measure of trust. Praying for the sick that they will recover, that requires trust. Interpreting a word of tongues, Lord have mercy, that requires trust, right? So much of what we do in the spirit-filled life requires trust. And I heard this story, uh, I came across this story as I was reading and preparing this week, of a man who was hiking, and he was hiking a little too close to the edge, and he slipped And he started as, you know, if you've been out hiking, especially in Woodland Park or the Incline, you know that a slip can quickly lead to your head over heels. You're just falling and falling and falling. And he reaches out and almost immediately is able to grab a branch. But he's in a remote area and he's stuck and he's hanging there. And he cries out and he says, is anyone there? And he hears this voice and it says, yes, I am God. And he goes, God is here. Well, this couldn't be any better. He says, God, will you save me? And if so, what should I do? And God said, absolutely, I'll save you. All you have to do is let go of the branch. And the man is hanging there, and he goes, well, is there anyone else up there? (laughs) Okay, fine, my story's not true. It's a fake story, y'all, just in case, yeah, you know. But this story gets at where so many of us crumble when it comes to trust. What keeps us from trusting is our need for certainty and our grasping for control. Our need for certainty. It's not enough that the God of the universe shows up and says, I'm going to save you. We want to know, well, exactly how far am I going to have to fall before you sweep in? And is this a literal save or like you're going to save my soul, but I'm going to hit the bottom and die? Like we want to know all the details of everything that God calls us to right from the beginning. And so often it is our need for certainty and our grasping for control which keep us from truly living a spirit-led life. Think about all of the isms that people say are the things that are plaguing the church. Things like consumerism, individualism, hedonism. Hedonism is basically the idea that pleasure is the highest value. Fatalism, all of these things are symptoms that come from coping mechanisms as people are trying to grasp for control. Consumerism, behind it, what's behind it? If I can have enough stuff I will be adequately prepared for any situation I could ever find myself in. Individualism. I love people, but I love people on my own terms. I don't want their choices infringing on my autonomy. 
So many of the things that are plaguing us through society are really just symptoms and the results of people grasping for control because we haven't quite figured out how to trust. And it's been this way from almost day one. Think about the original sin in the garden. God tells Adam and Eve, all of this is yours except for this one tree. So naturally, like all of us, they're eyeing the tree. They're trying to enjoy the rest of the garden, but they're eyeing the tree. And then the serpent comes along and says, you know, God doesn't want you to have that because then you'll have everything he has. They buy into the lie. They eat of the fruit. And sin and death and darkness enter the world. What's behind that? They wanted what God already wanted for them on their own terms without God. They wanted what would have been good for them in the right time from God, in his timing, in his way. They wanted it immediately. God wants to share his life with us. God wanted to share his life and everything he had with them. But they wanted it now, and they wanted it on their terms. They couldn't trust that God knew what was best for them, and would work out what was best for them. And guys, I want to tell you, before we get too deep into this, this is personal. I, I am someone who, more so than being in control, I absolutely despise the feeling of being out of control. Even this morning, these winds that some of, some of us experienced, my, my backyard, I have a couple of trees that, okay, this is, this is my fault. This is group counseling. My trees are dead. But they haven't come down yet, and I was praying they weren't going to come down this morning because of the winds. I hate the feeling of being out of control. I grew up in Florida. We had hurricanes. I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. They have tornadoes. I move here. We have these crazy hailstorms. And these hailstorms are so loud. One of the ones we had last week made my three-year-old break down crying because he thought our roof was going to cave in. I hate the feeling of being out of control. This is deeply personal for me. I feel like the Spirit led me to this message for me and maybe one or two of you, okay? <laughs> we're going to be rooted all over the book of Acts, but if, you're, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 through 8. This is the defining passage for everything that happens subsequently in the book of Acts. Jesus, on one occasion, was eating with the disciples, and he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is so funny. In my mind, this is like Snow White with the seven dwarfs, you know. They're eating with Jesus, and then they gather around him. Like all the disciples, they're scattered, you know, around the campfire, around the kitchen. And then they all come around Jesus. And they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What a beautiful passage. But you know what's missing? Any clarity about any of the details. 
So, Lord, how long do we have to wait? Mm. How long do we have to wait? How will we know when the gift has come? What will this gift be for us? Is it a gift we can use or is it a gift that's, you know, just valuable like a diamond, something that's beautiful to be cherished but doesn't do much for us in real life? And God, what kind of power are you going to give us? Is it the kind of power that we want, obviously by their question, which is the kind of power to overthrow Rome or is it some other kind of power? And Jesus doesn't answer any of their questions. When are we going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then from there to the ends of the earth? You have to wait and find out. It turns out the power the Spirit actually gives them is the ability to be faithful to God no matter what is happening to you or around you. The power that they wanted was the power to control circumstances, the power to make life better not just for them, they're good, compassionate, empathetic people, for their whole tribe, for all of their people. But the power that God actually gives them is the power to be faithful to him in every circumstance, no matter what is happening. You see a man on the side of the road asking for money, Peter? You don't have money, but you have the power to discern in that moment. I don't need money. I don't need the the power to fabricate resource. I have the power of God. So I recognize through discernment the man needs healing. I speak the healing power of Jesus for him. Paul, you're going to be imprisoned like lots of times. In those moments, sometimes there's going to be an earthquake or something's going to happen and the shackles are going to fall off. But even then, you have the power to discern. Are you going to leave the jail cell? Or do you have the discernment by the power of the Spirit to recognize that this man is going to take his life if you leave the jail cell? So you now have the power to stay, the power of self-control and long-suffering. And now a whole man's family comes to Christ and his lineage is changed forever. This is the kind of power that God gives them. It's not exactly what they wanted. They probably wanted a power that would help them see the future just a little bit. A power that would help them need to have faith and trust just a little bit less. But this is not how God operates. In Acts, we see that the kingdom of God doesn't come through dictating favorable circumstances or God taking control of people, but through the faithfulness of men and women who are full of the Spirit and fully trust God. How does God's kingdom come about in the book of Acts? It's not by God puppeteering people, making everything happen perfectly, favorable circumstances. It's God being at work in faithful men and women who are full of the Spirit, who fully trust God. I'm in prison. It's okay. God is sovereign. I'm bit by a snake. It's okay. God is sovereign. If this is my time to go, it's my time to go. This whole thing's not in my hands, it's in his hands. This is what we see over and over again in the book of Acts. The apostles are simply trying to make the next best decision in front of them as they're led by the Spirit. If you read the book of Acts, it is striking how they don't have a five-year plan. Have you noticed this? They don't even have a week-long plan. 
Everything is just happening before them. And they're discerning through the the power of the Spirit within them. And occasionally, via the direct voice of God or an angel showing up. But most of the time, not even that. Mostly, they're good, faithful men and women full of the Spirit, living in community, discerning together the will of God. And they're stepping out. And they're doing it. And they're saying, this sure doesn't look like God's given us the power over Rome. But we're just going to keep walking and see what happens. And wouldn't you know it, the kingdom of God comes over and over and over again in the book of Acts. In his book, Ruthless Trust, which is by far the best book that I've read on the subject of trust, Vernon Manning tells this story of a man named John Cavanaugh, a famous ethicist who went to Calcutta seeking Mother Teresa He went for three months to work at the House of the Dying to discern how he could best spend the rest of his life. When he met Mother Teresa, he asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, she asked. And he responded, clarity. Pray that I will receive clarity. And like only a saint could, she said, no, I will not pray for that. She said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanaugh heard that, he responded saying that she always seemed to have clarity. Why couldn't he have clarity? And she chuckled and responded, I've never had clarity, but what I've always had is trust. And so that is what I will pray for you. So many of us want to know the end from the beginning We want to know before I say yes to this, exactly what is going to happen every step along the way. But that is not how the Spirit has ever operated with people. We've gained this idea, many of us, maybe you haven't, maybe you've been blessed to not gain this idea. That the more important something is, the more God really wants me to do something, the more clear he will make it to me. Have you ever believed that? I certainly have. I've lived large portions of my life with this kind of belief, that this is incredibly important, therefore God will be the most demonstrative. The problem is that's not how he works almost ever in Scripture. As we just read in Acts 1.8, there's not many things in Scripture that are as important as what the disciples do immediately after the ascension. Jesus has in mind, the Father has in mind the day of Pentecost and all that will happen subsequently. But all Jesus tells them to do is wait. And some of us can't live with God just telling us to wait. We've got to know how long, where, with whom, am I allowed to have coffee or not? It's okay, I'm one of you. I am so one of you. And so today, um, with the remaining few minutes that we have, I want to look at three specific situations from the book of Acts that I think apply to each of our lives. Three situations where it is imperative to trust God. And these are difficult situations. This is not trust God on the day that you get the best promotion you've been praying for. But the first one is trust that the Spirit is at work in tragedy. Trust that the Spirit is at work in tragedy. 
before we look at the passage, we're going to look at the story of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54. You can turn there if you'd like. I want to give two pastoral notes before we jump in. The first is, I do not believe that God causes or wills evil in any way, shape, or form. That God does not need evil to reveal his goodness. That God does not need evil because, well, first, God does not need anything. Because if God had need at all, he could be manipulated. He could be coerced. But God created us and everything that is, not out of need, but out of delight and pleasure. That God does not need something bad to happen to you to get something good to come of your life. God doesn't work that way. That's the first thing. The second thing is, when tragedy happens, be human. Grieve. Lament. Name your loss. Name your frustration. Name your disappointment even with God. He can take it of all beings in the universe. I might not be able to take it. God can. So what I'm not saying in just a moment, I want you to hear what I'm not saying before you hear what I hope to be saying. And I've learned that I, if there's a point I really need you to hear, I have to hit it from 12 different angles, okay? We are created human beings who are finite in mind, in body, in space. We are finite in our emotions. God does not need you to be superhuman, and when something terrible happens, just to go, oh, well, praise God, he's getting the glory that my, my spouse has cancer or my child died or I lost my job, that's not the way that God works. God wants you to grieve. God wants you to be in people. But God also doesn't want you to lose hope. Trust that the Spirit is work, at work even in tragedy. So Acts chapter 7 Starting in verse 54, we're going to read through 8.1. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. Holy moly. I've never had anyone gnash their teeth at me. They might be angry when they gnash their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When he fell on his knees, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Skip to verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I believe in that moment that God is not rejoicing because now he gets to show up in power and do something great, but that God is grieving that his heart hurts, that Stephen became the first martyr, someone who was killed for his belief in Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, that God isn't up there rejoicing, God going, look, another opportunity to show my glory, 
but that God's heart hurt for Stephen and the people scatter. They're afraid. They're like, holy moly, now we know the answer to that question in Acts chapter 1. It doesn't seem God is going to give us the kind of power that we thought he was going to give us if people are dying for the cause of the faith. But also remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where did it say, where did Jesus say they would be his disciples? Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And upon Stephen dying, being persecuted, stoned, where do they flee to? Judea and Samaria. The point is this. Not that God needs evil to get his work done, but that there is no amount of evil that you can do or can be done to you that can usurp the power of God over that evil to bring about good in this world. That there is nothing that can happen to you, that there is nothing you can do to another person that can keep God from being God or keep his kingdom from coming. And this should be a breath of fresh air to you. Now, if you're in the midst of tragedy right now, my heart hurts for you. There are a number of situations I'm aware of, and friends, things break my heart. This is not a theological idea for me. I have walked this road and will probably walk this road again a few times over the course of the rest of my life. But I have learned that there are things that will happen to you that you can wish would not have happened. And you can ask God why, and you can ask God to intervene, and sometimes you'll get favorable responses, and sometimes you're left with questions. But what I have seen over and over and over again, that at the end of it, God is still trustworthy. That I have questions, that there are things that happen that don't make sense to me, I don't know why Stephen died. It's not right that Stephen died. But God is at work in the brokenness and in the rubble of that situation, immediately working things for his good. And the disciples scatter. And because the disciples scattered, most of us are in the room today. You realize if the faith had stayed in Jerusalem and not gone, to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the rest of the earth, most of us in the room would not be here, would not have heard the good news. There is nothing that can happen to you or that you can do to another person that can keep God from being God or can keep his kingdom from coming to bear on the earth. The second situation, I told you these were difficult, but I promise you the end's gonna be really hopeful, okay? The second one. Trust that the Spirit is at work in your setback. We're going to go to Acts 24. We're actually going to read two very short passages here. 24, we're going to read 25 through through, uh, 27. So Paul here is on trial, and it says, As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Well, Paul, maybe you shouldn't have told the gospel starting with those things. Goodness gracious. Felix, who was in power in the region Paul was in, was afraid and said, That's enough. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. 
But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Two years. Now turn to the last chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to read 28, the last two verses, 30 and 31. A different situation. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's the picture, what we have. Paul, in the prime of his ministry, on two different occasions, for two years each time. The first time is in prison. The second time is on first century house arrest. Not house arrest as we know it. No internet, no cell phones. Paul is on first century house arrest, meaning he's at the mercy of what is brought before him. Think about this. The prime of his ministry He's accused of something that they can't ever really actually put their finger on, what he's done wrong, other than they know that something about his belief in the resurrection of Jesus has made him a threat to their way of life. And so Paul spends multiple years of his life in prison and multiple years of his life on house arrest. Think of all the places Paul could be going, planting churches, witnessing to those who have never heard the good news, while he's being accused of something they can't ever pin him, really pin him down for, and four years of his life are wasted. Except, you know what happens? In one of those two times, scholars can't really figure out which of those two times. Paul writes the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. What Paul saw probably as a setback, God was at work in. Paul might not have ever stopped for long enough to write those four epistles. And I'm not suggesting that the Spirit put him in prison or put him on house arrest, but the same thing as the previous point. There's nothing that anyone can do to you or to me or anyone around you that can keep the goodness of God from coming to bear on their lives for the sake of the world. There is nothing that can happen to you. What might feel like a season that is completely wasted might actually be the season that God needs you to be in so that he can do his most important, deepest work in your life. Sometimes what seems like wasted time is space for the most important time. And think about this last verse, y'all. This this is blowing my mind. The last verse of the whole book of Acts. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Last time I checked, prison and house arrest are quite literally hindrances. How can Luke say, Paul is preaching without hindrance? Because somehow, what was an obstacle in the eyes of the Romans actually became an opportunity in the eyes of a faithful man full of the Spirit. Think about this in your own life. This is not just some Bible story that happened 2,000 years ago. That there are seasons in your life that are setbacks. I don't want to say that they're not. I'm not saying God's putting you there for some grand purpose. 
What I am saying is that every setback can be either an obstacle or an opportunity. And you know what makes the decision? Your faithfulness and do you trust God? Do you trust God? Will you trust God and seek him in the midst of the setback, in the midst of the obstacle, and say, God, I don't know what to do here, and I certainly wouldn't have chosen it, but here I am. I would never have written this script this way. For me, for my family, for my neighbor, you fill in the blank. But here I am, Lord. Have your way. What is it that you want to do? Within me, through me, through someone else for me, God is not constricted by any of the things that are hindrances to you or to me. Those things can be doors to God. Hear that again. Anything that is meant to be a hindrance to you or to me can be a gate, a door to God. There is nothing in this life that is a hindrance from keeping the goodness of God to come to bear on your life for the sake of the world. I'm going to say that four or five or six times in this message. Until you leave and you believe it. You believe there is nothing, no mistake you have made even in your unfaithfulness. Even if in the midst of the setback in your life right now, you've not been treating it as an opportunity. All you've been doing is whining and lamenting about it being an obstacle. And I'm not pointing the finger at you. I point the finger at myself all the time for stuff like this. Do we stop and pray and say, Lord, where is the opportunity here? What might you be doing? How might you write four epistles through me in the season when I'd rather be out there doing and yet I'm stuck in here? When we trust and follow the Spirit, obstacles can become opportunities. Number three, the final point, trust the Spirit is at work in your future. Some of us are living the kind of life right now where there's no joy, there's no excitement, there's no faith, there's, there's none of this activity. Some of you are saying, I'll take just a little bit of adventure, even if it means some riskiness, some things that I don't like. Some of you, your life is headed in a really deep and dark place right now, maybe because of a setback or because of a tragedy. And you're wondering, I don't know how God could ever redeem this. I don't know how God could be in this at all. And here's what I am here to proclaim to you today. That God is at work in the past, the present, and the future of your life all at the same time. Acts chapter 28. Another time, or 26, excuse me. Paul is now testifying He's presenting his case before King Agrippa. Verse 6 through 8. And now, Paul says, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. Hear that. Think about that. Paul is on trial because in his hope in the living, resurrected Jesus. And before we even read the rest of this, as I was reading it, this question struck me. Do I have enough hope in Jesus to where it actually shapes my life in a meaningful way? Has hope in Jesus Christ so gripped my life that other people can see it in a meaningful way? 
Verse 7, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul had seen just enough in his lifetime to trust that God was going to keep working until every promise he had made was completely fulfilled. Hear this. Paul did not see all of it done in his lifetime. Paul was imprisoned. He was accused because of his belief that what he had seen was only a small part of what God was actually going to do in the future. He was so convicted by what he had seen, which turned out to be just a glimpse. And Paul is saying, the thing that these 12 tribes, of which I am still a part, are hoping for, I've seen just a little bit more when Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I've seen just a little bit more when I was in prison, and the prison, when some earthquake happened, and the prison doors opened, and I could have walked out. And circumstantially, the guard is standing there, and he's about to take his life, and I lead this man to the Lord. And I one time was on a shipwreck, actually three times was shipwrecked, and somehow made it through. And I was bitten by a poisonous snake, and somehow made it through. No, I haven't seen it all done yet, but I've seen enough to know God's not going to stop working until every promise he's ever made is completely fulfilled to you and to me and to the rest of the world. Friends, God is at work in your future. Don't stop. Don't give up. Trust in the Lord. And our last passage as we prepare for communion, 2 Timothy. This is widely believed to be the last book that Paul ever wrote in his final imprisonment. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Think about the man we've been talking about today. This is how he can write this passage from a prison cell to a young man who he believes he is entrusting his ministry with. Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline, says a man from prison. Don't let circumstances make you timid. Let them bring self-control and love and patience and peace and the fruit of the Spirit out of your life. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know 
whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That last question that Paul posed to King Agrippa in the previous reading in Acts 26. Why are you impressed that God can raise from the dead? And the answer to that question is what everything in our faith and our hope hinges on. Because if God can raise Jesus from the dead, there's nothing he can't do. There's no evil he can't overcome. There's no wrong he can't right. There's no setback he can't make an opportunity. And there's no human heart he can't change. Friends, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that tells us there is nothing God can't do. Please stand. Lord, I pray that you would awaken hope and faith in us again today. As we come to this table, I pray we would encounter Jesus, the living Lord, the one who was resurrected, the one who is at the right hand of the Father, the one whose return we await. And we await with faith and hope. And we say, God, I haven't seen it all, but I've seen just enough. I've seen just enough to trust you in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of setback that I would have never chosen. And I choose to believe that you are at work in my future, even beyond my own death. Friends, this meal is a meal that reminds us of what God has done. And at the same time, it reminds us of what is still left undone that God is going to finish in the future. This is a meal of anticipation. This is a meal that says, God, we come to this table and we eat just a piece. We don't receive a full meal up here. We receive just a piece because you're not done working yet. This is the table of the Lord. You can exit out the left-hand side of your row, come receive the elements. And take them back to your seats and we will partake together in just a moment. Come to the table of the Lord.